everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine. He was elected in November of last year in a tight election and has since seen a crazy whirlwind as not only a flurry of reforms that he's pushed through in San Francisco, but of course, the COVID world. So welcome to the show, Chesa. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you, and thanks for all your work covering these really important issues. So what are your thoughts on the first nine months? Well, it's been a busy period, and it's... uh, it had a lot of surprises in terms of COVID and in terms of the uh, surge of the Black Lives Matter movement and the budget implications of the shelter in place and the uh, outrages that we see coming from Washington on a daily basis. So it's been a very busy period and uh, I'm thankful to have a great team and to be in a city that uh, knows the status quo approach to criminal justice is failing all of us, and this really opened to change. I think we've been very productive, and I know how far we have to go, uh, but one of the terrible things and one of the great things about working in the criminal justice system is there are no shortage of really urgently needed reforms. Pretty much everywhere we look, we see uh, changes that need to be made, and so we're working as fast as we can safely make those changes. And we've done a lot in nine months. So I remember when they finally announced that uh, you had won the election and and all of a sudden it seemed like everything got transformed and you went from being, I'm not going to say low-key, but you know it was kind of a normal situation and all of a sudden it just got elevated. Has that ever calmed down? It, it hasn't, David. You know, I had the the first two months in office before COVID kind of took over our daily lives weren't particularly calm for me, even though it was quote unquote normal because it was a steep learning curve and because we were trying to um, get a lot done quickly. I had to get to know a whole new staff. I had to meet with a wide range of other government officials and community members and constituents Um, some of whom had not been supportive of me during the campaign, but who wanted to reach out and and be in conversation. And um, obviously I want to be accessible to everyone who I represent, who I serve. So 
uh, I had a very, very busy schedule in those first couple of months, meeting with my staff, um, observing court proceedings, working on new policies, hiring to fill vacancies that existed in the office where I took over. And before I knew it, and before I really caught my breath, we were in a shelter-in-place situation, and we were forced to respond in uh, real time to a constantly changing and very unstable uh, new way of life that had very significant impacts both on crime trends as well as for our daily operations as a law office and for how we conduct business in the courthouse. Are you surprised by how high a profile uh, the position became right after you got elected? You know, I don't focus too much on the media or whether it's high profile or not. I'm, I'm trying to do good work, and to the extent we're able to model policies that are successful or that uh, move our system in the right direction and other places want to follow it or want to cover what we're doing, that's great. Uh, I think it would be in keeping with San Francisco's self-image and with the role that San Francisco and California more broadly have played historically for us to be high profile because of our innovations, because of the changes that we're willing to make and the foresight that we have uh, around policy innovation. So um, I'm, I'm really focused on getting the work done. And if uh, media attention helps us to create political space for other folks to follow suit, so much the better. And you've already been able to push through some of the changes that you had campaigned on. Are there others that you're still working on? Absolutely. You know, we, we had a very ambitious campaign platform, as I'm sure you remember, and there's no way we could have possibly accomplished all of our goals in a nine-month period or even a, a first year in office. Some of them may take more than a full term in office, uh, given the amount of work. But we're building a foundation that will allow us to get that work done uh, and to allow us to continue implementing the kinds of policy reforms that are needed to restore faith in the criminal justice system. But many of the policies that I promised I would put in place on the campaign trail we have put in place, but we're still very much rolling them out, implementing them. And long term, I think we're really trying to change the culture in our office and at the Hall of Justice. Uh, when it comes to, you know, how we expect to respond to problems of crime, especially when it is true in 75% of arrests in San Francisco, it's motivated by some combination of drug addiction or, or mental illness. Um, so we have a long way to go when it comes to culture, when it comes to building the capacity for many of the alternative approaches that, um, that we're focused on. So absolutely lots to do. One of the interesting aspects of the COVID world is that a lot of things have, have uh, moved on to Zoom uh, that used to be uh, held live. And so I've been able to actually cover probably a lot more of your press conferences and things than I would normally be able to do. Um, I'm 90 miles away uh, for those who are wondering. But, uh, you know, what, what's interesting that I've seen is kind of this uh, twofold approach. On the one hand, you know, when you're speaking to a national audience, you're talking about criminal justice reform issues. When you're speaking to a local audience, they're much more interested in property crimes and our violent crimes going up and things like that. How do you uh, 
square both of those. At the end of the day, I'm a San Francisco public servant. I work for the people of the city and county of San Francisco. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Every day is humbling. This is an amazing city full of tremendous diversity. And I'm really lucky to be in a position to work to make the city fairer and safer for all of us. Uh, That's my main focus. Uh, When there's national interest in what we're doing, like I said, it it can be useful to help you raise awareness outside of San Francisco about policy changes we believe can help improve public safety and the integrity of the justice system. Uh, but my focus is always on what's happening locally. Now, of course, what happens in San Francisco isn't limited to the seven by seven mile uh, area of the city and county. About a third of the people we prosecute are residents of other counties. And we are constantly uh, working with other law enforcement agencies and with the state legislature in Sacramento and with the governor's office and and so on when it comes to implementing policies that affect our ability to keep San Francisco safe. So uh, I, of course, have to think about and engage with and work with people outside of my city, but the focus is always on what we can do to make things safer and better and fairer in San Francisco. So one of my personal frustrations has been uh, the lack of access to the courts virtually. In a lot of the counties in in California that uh, we cover, uh, we're able to watch via Zoom. Uh, So we have probably 70 interns right now, and they're covering courts ranging from Sacramento to Fresno to Riverside and even Humboldt County. Um, But not San Francisco, uh, because there's a single YouTube link and it doesn't work most of the time. Is there anything we can do to, uh, to get more access for San Francisco courts? David, I share your frustration when it comes to public access, and I wish I had control over more aspects of court procedures. Um, I, I don't control the courts. I know that a lot of folks have the perception that the DA runs the courts, but the truth is, Uh, I run the office that represents the people in the state of California uh, in criminal cases in San Francisco. And uh, I often have disagreements with the court about various things. One of them is about public access. I share your frustration. I think it would be important to have much more public access. And uh, I'm a little surprised and disappointed that in the technology capital of the world, we haven't figured out a better system to allow folks to watch court, especially given, as you point out, the limitations of the, of the COVID pandemic. I will say that one of the concerns the court has raised uh, to justify its, its position is a concern that uh, victims or witnesses could be intimidated or threatened much more easily when courtrooms are broadcast live as compared to when they're open to the public, but there's a bailiff in the courtroom, and it's possible for the judge and the bailiff to see who's coming in. And I think that's sort of the, the crux of the challenge, is how do we ensure truly public access as is required by the Constitution, while also having uh, a mechanism for the court to retain control over its courtroom and to keep participants in proceedings safe. So um, 
we've also been watching this kind of brewing uh, national issue where there are reform-minded DAs that are getting pretty severe pushback. Uh, it started out in places like Florida uh, and also uh, Philadelphia with uh, Larry Krasner. But this year, um, it's been uh, Virginia and uh, St. Louis with Kim Gardner. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Are you feeling any of that kind of heat, or is it mostly just local people? The movement for criminal justice reform has taken a lot of different forms over the years. And then over the last five years, we've seen a growth in focus on electing progressive prosecutors, prosecutors who are decarceral, who understand that we are actually safer in the long run if we invest in communities rather than investing in incarceration as a primary response to social problems. And some of the folks you mentioned are high-profile members of that movement or leaders of that movement in their jurisdictions. Um, there is, of course, pushback. Anytime that you have a movement that's successfully advocating for change, there's going to be pushback and resistance from people who are invested in the status quo. And that's what we're seeing in the attack on Kim Gardner and others that you mentioned. It's not a surprise at all to me, um, but I am um, proud to be part of the movement, and I am eager to see the gains that I expect the movement will continue to make as we head into this year's election season. We've already had a number of high-profile victories this year in key primaries uh, in places like Chicago, where Kim Fox uh, won uh, re-election or set two. Um, in, in places like um, Michigan, where we had really uh, you know, exciting uh, leaders of this reform movement uh, win key primaries, um, and in, in places like Portland, where we have a new progressive prosecutor in office um, as of a month or two ago. And, um, you know, maybe we can use this moment to kind of introduce the concept. Uh, so, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, uh, you guys came out with the announcement that you've created this alternative now to the California District Attorneys Association. And I don't know if you recall, but uh, right after you got elected, uh, we were, were talking about the need uh, to create uh, some kind of alternative because the CDAA is, is so uh, regressive. So talk about the Prosecutors Alliance and what that might be able to allow you to do. For decades, law enforcement lobbies, whether police unions or prosecutor associations, have been on the wrong side of criminal justice reform. They've blindly advocated for harsher and harsher punishments. They've defended the failed war on drugs. Um, and they've resisted any effort at change without regard to what actually works to keep communities safe. And th this blind reliance on punishment as a solution to social problems has really uh, had devastating consequences, social, economic, human. Um, we see it in our communities. We see it in statistics like one that's very close to my own heart and experience, which is that 50% of Americans, American adults, have an immediate family member who's either currently or formerly incarcerated. I'm one of the majority of Americans in that regard. And 
it's become a defining part of our culture. It's become a defining part of the American experience in ways that are really problematic and damaging to who we are as a nation and to what our priorities are, where we invest. Prosecutors bear a really significant part of the blame for that. And we've seen in California, for example, over the last five years, as the popular will has begun to change and begun to recognize that there are better ways to approach public safety than through policies like three strikes sentencing, uh, for example. Um, as the state legislature has implemented reforms, not only has CDA lobbied against virtually every progressive reform, but even once those reforms are passed by the legislature and signed into law by the governor, CDA either refuses to implement them or litigates against them. It's a real problem, and we're supposed to represent the people. The people want change. They want progressive policies that work to keep us safe, that work to honor and heal crime victims, and that work to rehabilitate people who have committed harm in their communities. And we need an organization that speaks for law enforcement leaders who are committed to that vision and to actually honoring the will of the people. The Prosecutors Alliance is that organization, and I'm proud to be one of the founding members. And what's really interesting is watching uh, this movement, uh, because it wasn't very long ago, 2018, uh, that year, really for the first time, there were a whole bunch of uh, DAs across the state of California that were challenged electorally, which really didn't happen very often previously. But the challenging DAs, for the most part, did not win. Uh, and some of them didn't even come close, even though they were... Uh, some in some cases really good candidates, um, and that seems to have uh, shifted uh, now in the last year. I mean, we could probably name five or ten uh, across the country that have been able uh, to win just in the last couple months. Uh, so, um, what are you seeing here? I mean, what what accounts for that? I mean, you were kind of one of the early ones in this current wave. And then really five or 10, and some of them have defeated incumbents kind of overwhelmingly. People are sick and tired of the failings of our approach to criminal justice. It's bankrupting state and local governments. It's destroying communities and families. And it's exacerbating racial disparities in every aspect of our lives. And it's not keeping us safer. Uh, the tough on crime folks have had decades to improve and learn and grow. And instead of relying on data or empirical evidence to do what works, they rely on fear mongering. And voters are fed up with that. Voters want something that's hopeful. They want something that's data driven. And they want something that actually is rooted in community. And I think we're seeing um, that play out in the in the polls across the country. At the same time, are we seeing a pushback? Uh, you know, we've had this kind of uh, national conversation kind of developing with the presidential candidate uh, trying to push back and say, hey, all these, uh, we, we see crime rates rising. Uh, we had, um, you know, the murder rate has gone up, although some of the other crimes have, have gone down uh, across the country. We're seeing Prop 20 in California where they're, where they're trying to roll back some of the reforms? Are we seeing a pushback or is this just more kind of static? 
I think it's mostly static. You know, we're watching a very unusual presidential election. I don't need to, to tell you that. I'm sure it's a depressing one in many ways. But as is often for one thing this election has in common with prior presidential elections is that the candidates in this stage are really pitching themselves to a very, very small number of voters who are not representative of the country as a whole. They've made it through the primary process. They've won the support of their party. And now they're trying to persuade maybe 300,000 voters in Pennsylvania who are undecided to vote for them or to come out to vote. Um, and maybe 300,000 voters in Ohio um, and, and so on. That's really who the presidential candidates are focused on right now. It's not the average voter, and it's not a reflection of the state of the country as a whole. It's what it takes to win in a really problematic electoral college uh, structure that we that we uh, are stuck with for the moment. Yeah, I mean, all you had to do was watch last night, and uh, it gives you the willies. Yes, the, the presidential debates um, are a reminder that President Trump has succeeded in denigrating the integrity of literally everything he's touched. And the process of choosing a, uh, a president is no exception. It's not just our prestige in the world. It's not just the prestige of the Supreme Court or the courts overall. It's not just the prestige of uh, you know, the American government in general, right down to the process of having a debate with any sense of dignity or any semblance of integrity uh, has been undermined. So I want to talk about some happier subjects, uh, or at least uh, more hopeful ones. Um, so uh, in the last few weeks, uh, you introduced the post-conviction review unit. I'm one of those people that is partly in this space, even though it's not a, a, a personal uh, situation, but I got involved in helping somebody who was sentenced to 378 years for a crime uh, that we believe he did not commit. And uh, a lot of people probably don't realize just how difficult it is to get somebody who's been wrongly convicted out. Uh, recently, um, a case that I had been uh, following in North Carolina. The guy had been in prison since 1976, uh, and he was finally uh, released uh, by the uh, by the Fourth Appellate Court. And it, it took a tremendous amount of time in a case where um, there there's eyewitness identification problems. The police had covered up evidence and withheld it. Um, you know, kind of the standard uh, run-of-the-mill stuff uh, that that leads to these things. But the problem is, is that once they're in, they're stuck uh, until you can convince a court to let them out. So what is a post-conviction unit, and how is yours going to work? I'll just agree with you, David, that the legal system is really focused on finality and closure, and it is very difficult to reopen old cases. Judges don't like to do it. Um, DA officers don't like to do it. And it takes really unusual circumstances to reopen a question of, of, of guilt or innocence. Obviously, there's an appellate process, but 
once that process has run its course, it is extremely difficult and in some places, in cases, impossible to reopen proceedings. My post-conviction unit is going to focus on a number of different issues and a number of different kinds of cases and procedures. So I'll talk about two, uh, but these are not exhaustive. One is looking at old cases where we believe that the person in prison is guilty of what they were convicted of, and we believe in the integrity of the conviction, but we don't think the sentence was fair, and we believe they're safe to be released to their communities, having served the amount of time they've already served. That situation occurs for a number of reasons, primarily related to the really extreme draconian sentences that were normalized in this country during the 1990s and early 2000s. We have a number of people in state prison out of San Francisco County who've been there for decades, who have really stellar prison records, who have families and communities ready to support them if and when they come home. And in many instances, we have crime victims that don't oppose their release. Yet, if we don't intervene, they'll die in prison. Tremendous cost to taxpayers and really no public policy benefit to keeping them in. So one category of cases that the post-conviction unit is already working on and has already made headway on is those categories where someone uh, simply doesn't need to stay in prison any longer. The other category, and there's some overlap, you know, I'll come back to the overlap in a moment, is cases where there's a claim of innocence. There's a claim that the person was framed or that they were uh, wrongfully convicted in a way that doesn't go just to the length of sentence, but goes to the integrity of the conviction itself. I've campaigned on a platform of really significant reforms because I recognize how profoundly failed our criminal justice system is and has been for years. That recognition requires that we also look backwards, not simply forwards that we try to undo some of the harm that's been caused. Uh, and this post-conviction unit is just one small part of trying to undo the harm that's been caused uh, by the failings of our status quo approach to criminal justice. Uh, one of the things that we recognize is there are some people serving time in state prison or who maybe have already gotten out but who have a conviction on their record that defines their employment opportunities and their housing opportunities and so on for which they were innocent. We don't want people to be punished for things they didn't do. It undermines the rule of law. It undermines the integrity of the criminal justice system. And it's just plain wrong. So we set up a commission of outside experts who don't work for me, but who report to me, who can systematically review any potentially meritorious claim of innocence out of San Francisco County, take a close look at the evidence that exists, and they'll have the cooperation of my office to get materials that, that, that we still have available, even in old cases, uh, and look at the evidence using today's uh, understanding of forensics, make sure we're not relying on junk science that's been disproven, and make sure we're not relying on 
uh, either uh, testimony of police officers or, or witnesses that have been discredited in ways that go to the heart of, of the conviction. Um, and, and then to report back to me so I can make a decision about whether we want to seek, even as difficult as you pointed out it can be, to reopen those cases uh, and to vacate convictions or enter factual findings of innocence where appropriate. And I want to unpack this a little bit more because, uh, you know, one thing that that was really interesting, we had uh, Mark Godsey, who's the director of the Ohio Innocence Project on uh, last month. And, you know, one of the points that he made is that, you know, you see these conviction integrity uh, units, um, sometimes they're conviction review units, sometimes they're post-conviction units, they all serve kind of the same function. But uh, there, there are ones that work and there are ones that don't work. And the ones that don't work tend to have uh, attorneys that are, are staff attorneys that are in the chain of command and kind of have a stake in maintaining the integrity of uh, the original conviction as opposed to questioning it. Um, on the other hand, the ones that really work well are when you have outside attorneys, people that work uh, as innocence attorneys, uh, public defenders, all sorts of other things. And, and what really struck me, and I know several of the people that you named, um, is that you have all of those. So you, you named Linda Starr, who, who's run the uh, Innocence Project out of Santa Clara uh, for, for decades now. Uh, you have Jacku Wilson, who's one of our partners at the Public Defender's Office. Uh, you, you have uh, uh, Laura Bazelon uh, from, uh, from the law school over there. I, I mean, you have, a, and, and I'm sure the other people that I don't know uh, are, are equally uh, impressive, uh, but uh, you really have a top-notch group that are going to be looking at this stuff. We do, and we're really honored to have so many superstars on the commission. Um, the other folks on the commission are really, really spectacular as well. Retired Judge Doris Cordell, uh, a civil rights leader uh, in the Bay Area, uh, Dr. George Woods, a forensic expert who's testified in hundreds of cases, criminal cases, and understands uh, a lot of the complex issues that uh, probably weren't well understood 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, as well as Arcelia Otago, who has a uh, long distinguished legal career and is a managing attorney in my office, um, who brings tremendous life experience and, and legal experience to the work. The goal of this unit, and, and this is something I developed on the campaign trail, and, and we had a very detailed plan for what this unit would look like that we put out on the campaign trail. And we tried to stick to that plan because we developed it in partnership with folks like Barry Sheck. And we worked with Professor Laura Bazelon uh, during the campaign to come up with a model that would, as you said, be, uh, be a model for the country. And that would not replicate some of the failings of other uh, innocence projects. We, we know that when the district attorney's office owns the process internally. And as you say, the attorneys working on the cases are in the chain of command. There is often going to be tremendous institutional pressure not to exonerate people, even if the evidence points towards innocence, simply because younger attorneys are reviewing cases that were tried or litigated by their superiors. 
by people who they look up to and who they depend on for promotions and raises and, and professional opportunities. And it's a bad model. It's like these are the kinds of cases and the kinds of difficult decisions that appropriately fall on the shoulders of the elected head of the office. And to the extent we can have independent, neutral, detached, objective evaluation of old cases litigated by this office, regardless of whether the lawyer that tried the case is still working for me, regardless of whether they retired, regardless of what their relationships are with current staff, the better job will do in seeking justice. And I think, you know, people hear this. And uh, one thing that I, I think people should be aware of is that if you look at like the uh, National Exo- um, uh, Registry of Exonerations came out with a big report uh, a few weeks ago, a huge percentage of those cases are not people that are freed by like innocence projects or a post-conviction process. They're freed by these uh, conviction review units. And I don't think people are really aware of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it points to some of the challenges that innocence pro- out, you know, outside innocence projects have when they're facing resistance from the local DA's office. A lot of the files and materials that are needed to do a objective evaluation of an old case are in our possession. And if we're unwilling to share them and unwilling to uh, even be open to the possibility that, yes, we may have, as an office, presided over wrongful convictions, it's going to be much more difficult to move forward. So I think the, the, the strength of the model we've built, and I hope it will, will prove effective going forward, is we bring together the expertise from people like Professor Bazelon, Dr. Woods, Judge Cordell, and, and, and as you said, you know, the, 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 the staff at the Northern California Innocence Project with the ability to access the actual original files and to look into uh, evidentiary issues or legal questions. That might be a black box if uh, our office weren't cooperative. So moving on a little bit, uh, another one of the reforms that you pushed through, you you made the announcement in February, literally, as it turned out, days before the world was going to shut down. Uh, and I just happened to be there. Uh, but uh, you eliminated stop and frisk and you uh, stopped doing gang charges and other uh, status enhancements. Uh, what was the thinking there? Racism is manifest in every single stage of the criminal justice process. We see it from arrests to convictions, to sentencing, to parole and reentry. And we know in San Francisco there are some very specific problems in areas where racism manifests most egregiously. One of those is with traffic stops, where black and brown drivers are grossly disproportionately likely to be stopped and one stop to be searched with or without their consent, even though those searches are less likely than searches of white motorists to reveal contraband. And this has been true for decades, despite high-profile studies, including a scathing report from the Obama Department of Justice demanding policy changes. The, the, the reality on the ground for communities of color in San Francisco has not changed. And we cannot continue to be complicit 
in perpetuating those racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Same thing is true with sentencing and three strikes laws or the use of gang enhancements, um, which target primarily uh, the, the, the last few black neighborhoods in San Francisco. We don't have gang cases against white alleged gang members in San Francisco. We haven't had them for probably over a decade. And we're not talking about Crips and Bloods. We're not talking about um, you know, the, the kind of gang issues that I know have plagued parts of Southern California. In San Francisco, we're talking about people who live in the neighborhood and who may get involved in criminal activity with their cousin or their neighbor, and they've been treated as though they're criminal street gangs. Um, it criminalizes culture, it criminalizes family relationships, and it undermines trust between communities that are impacted by crime and the law enforcement officials who are supposed to serve and protect those communities. So we took a number of stances uh, early in the administration to try to uh, change that race, racist legacy and break out of it. One of the things we did, as you point out, was we issued a policy declining to prosecute contraband uh, cases that stem from pretextual traffic or pedestrian stops. A second thing we did was issued a policy declining to prosecute gang enhancements or allegations. And a uh, similar thing we did was to decline to use other status enhancements like three strike sentences. We want to focus on holding people accountable for the conduct at issue in the criminal case that we're prosecuting, not for who they are or what they've already been punished for in the past. And these policies help us move away from a racist legacy, a draconian, punitive legacy, and focus more on holding people accountable and helping keep the public safe. Now, my understanding is last year or, or sometime in the recent uh, past, the ratio was something like 55 or 56 percent of the people in San Francisco jail were black, even though the overall black population of the city is only like 6 percent. Are you making inroads into that? Yes and no. Uh, we have not succeeded in significantly changing the percentage of the jail population that's black. And that's something that I'm acutely aware of and that we're working on every day. Where we have made really significant strides is in reducing the jail population overall. Since I took office, we've reduced the jail population by approximately 40%. And we've done so even as crime rates continue to fall. And this is important because so many of the police unions and the tougher on crime uh, critics of this reform movement are constantly engaged in fear-mongering that if we let anybody out of jail, if we reduce the jail population at all, crime rates will skyrocket. And what we've seen in the last nine months is the opposite. Even though we've reduced the jail population by about 40%, overall crime rates in San Francisco are now down by 22% as compared with the same time period in 2019. That's a massive drop. And I don't want to suggest that our policies are responsible or that I deserve credit for that drop in crime. The point is a, a very different point, which is that we've shown it's possible to safely decarcerate, something that the, the, the criminal justice tough on crime lobbies refuse to accept as, as, as possible. And we've shown it's possible. We've shown that, in fact, if we look carefully at who's in the jail and if we think intently about reentry planning, that we can and should 
significantly reduce jail populations across the country. And we can do so in ways that actually promote safety rather than undermine it. Which is all very important, um, but I do want to get back to the racial disparities. Uh, how do we attack that issue? Well, it's something we're working on. I think our pretextual traffic stop policy uh, will help and has helped. It's something our sentencing policy will help and has helped. But some of those things take a long-term uh, view. The sentencing, for example, will make a big difference when it comes to looking at statistics um, about racial disparities in state prison or in county jail over a multi-year period, but won't make a difference over the course of just a year because people, even people not being charged with strike priors or not being charged with gang enhancements may still be in custody on the underlying um, substantive uh, charge. So some of it is just a question of giving time, uh, allowing time for these policies to take effect. And another part of it is change, changing the culture in the courthouse and in the office around race. It's something we do trainings on uh, every, pretty much every week. It's something that we think about and work on when we have the opportunity to hire new attorneys. Um, and it's something that I hope uh, will also begin to change as we have new judges take the bench in San Francisco. I know we've got two judges who, uh, three judges who just won elections last year, uh, all on progressive platforms, who will be taking the bench in January. And I hope that over time we start to see a change. And then the big issue this year has turned into police accountability. Um, I know you ran on a platform of holding the police accountable. I know that uh, you've led the way kind of in trying to uh, separate uh, district attorney uh, campaigns from money from uh, police unions. Uh, but what can we do uh, at a systemic level? And then what can you do as a prosecutor in San Francisco? We need to do a lot more. I think the whole country knows that now. Anybody who's paying attention to what happened to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others in 2020 is, is acutely aware of the need for reforms. But there's no magic bullet or quick fix. A few of the things that we've done since I took office help move us forward, but they're not solutions in and of themselves. We drafted a resolution and partnered with Supervisor Shimon Walton that would prevent San Francisco from hiring law enforcement officers or sheriff's deputies with a prior sustained finding of serious misconduct. We also issued a proposal to cure the conflict of interest between prosecutors and police unions that would basically be a state bar rule if it's adopted that would prohibit district attorney candidates from seeking or accepting political or financial support from law enforcement unions. Uh, we also implemented the policy that we already talked about around pretextual traffic stops. If police won't make the reforms themselves, even after years of data, even after pressure from the Department of Justice under President Obama, then we're going to start implementing policies um, that we hope don't influence their behavior and shape their behavior. Um, but as I said, none of that's enough. We also need to recognize that there are real victims of, it, of police violence who are often ignored by uh, victim services. 
So we implemented a policy in my office that in, uh, extends the same victim services and resources that any crime victim would get to victims and witnesses of police violence. We don't want people to have to rely on a GoFundMe page to pay for the funeral of a loved one, so by a police officer. But we're working to make that local policy state law and to encourage other district attorney's offices to follow our lead. We also implemented a policy not to prosecute peaceful protesters because we recognize that civil, even civil disobedience has a critical role in our country's history of social change and legal change. We've also developed a policy of not calling as witnesses or relying on officers with a known history of serious misconduct. We can't always get them off the streets. We can't always control whether the police department chooses to, to fire them or where they get assigned. But we can and will refuse to put them on the witness stand to testify to evidence we can't independently collaborate. Um, and it's another policy we implemented uh, based on the knowledge that when police use excessive force, all too often the victim of that excessive force is charged with things like resisting arrest or assault on an officer. In order to distinguish meritorious cases of assault on an officer, which we can and will continue to prosecute, from those cases where those charges are being used as part of a cover-up, in order to ensure we're not complicit in those cover-ups, we implemented a policy requiring our charging uh, assistant district attorneys to review body-worn camera footage or other independent evidence prior to filing those charges. And when it comes to um, an issue that I know is is really critical, and I'm sure you'd ask me to follow up on it if I didn't get to it, uh, prosecuting police who commit crimes. It's an area that continues to be a challenge. It's an area where the progress has been slower uh, than I would have hoped. I committed to the voters in San Francisco that I would prosecute police cases equally and that I would hold police accountable um, the same way that we hold other people who commit crimes accountable. And I continue to be committed to doing that. We've made changes. We've uh, put in place a new management of our independent investigation bureau that's responsible for investigating police use of force cases. Uh, and we have hired a number of new lawyers to work on those cases, lawyers with tremendous dedication and uh, trial experience. And I hope that in that effort and uh, that process of revitalizing that unit, We'll, we'll have the ability to successfully prosecute cases where police have used excessive force or even cases where they've shot and killed people uh, unlawfully. So let me ask you quickly, and I know we're running out of time here, but, uh, you know, I think this is a real important issue. Um, you know, we're watching the Breonna Taylor uh, issue uh, coming up and uh, the use of the grand jury uh, there. It, it just seems like the use of grand juries for these kinds of cases shrouds all this stuff in mystery that really doesn't have to be. I mean, you could do, uh, you could use a, uh, a preliminary hearing, could you not, for some of these cases and be much more transparent? There, there are, at least under California law, a number of options when it comes to how we file Selling cases. We can direct file a complaint and then proceed by way of preliminary hearing, and that does have the benefit of transparency. Or we can use a grand jury to seek an indictment. And I think that depending on the case, there are pros and cons. Um, 
from the standpoint of the prosecution. One of the disadvantages, David, as you pointed out, to grand juries is they happen behind closed doors, and so there's less transparency. But California law was recently changed so that in cases involving police shootings resulting in death, the grand jury proceedings after the conclusion of the grand jury are, are available to be made public. Most grand jury proceedings that do not result in an indictment are not public, and I think that is um, it's an understandable uh, policy in many instances. But in these cases that are subject to so much public attention and scrutiny, and understandably so, um, I think it's a good change in the law. So, for example, if my office were to seek an indictment against a police officer in the case in a case that resulted in a fatality, uh, in a shooting fatality, even if the grand jury declined to indict, the transcript would be made public and it would be available for scrutiny so that people could judge for themselves whether we tried our best to present the evidence honestly and fairly and fully. That's an important addition to the usual limitations on grand jury privacy. One of the reasons why you might prefer to proceed by way of grand jury to seek an indictment um, is that it allows you to get to trial much more quickly. If you have a grand jury indictment, you don't need to wait potentially years to do the preliminary hearing. Uh, it allows you to skip over that procedure and essentially file the case when you're already ready to go to trial. Um, many of our preliminary hearings uh, that are scheduled are in cases that are a year or even two years old, sometimes longer in serious cases. And um, this would help us move those cases more quickly through the, through the system. Um, and another advantage is that if and when the charges are filed, uh, if an indictment is handed down by the grand jury, it wouldn't just be uh, me as the individual district attorney making the decision. We'd have the support and the backing of a jury of our peers that had reviewed the evidence and made a finding that there is probable cause to support the charges going forward. So the, the trade-off around timing and transparency are, are real, and I think it really just comes down to uh, a case-by-case -case decision about how you can most effectively um, and, and transparently move a case forward. Well, I want to thank you, Chesa, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. Thank you, David. Good to speak with you always, and so appreciative of the work that, that you do helping to shed light into uh, an area of American government that is all too poorly understood. Well, thank you. That, that was Chesa Bodine, the San Francisco District Attorney. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.